Which day of the Passion Week did Jesus go to the temple? Now the Passion Week is dealing with that last week of his life. We're dealing with Sunday through his death on, or the resurrection following Sunday. Which days of the Passion Week did he go to the temple? Palm Sunday? Is that a subtle hint? Palm Sunday. Okay, Sunday was, did he go any other days? What did he do on Monday? Cleanse the temple. Did he go back any other day? I know it's, we, the last time we studied this was last year. I understand. That's, you know, several weeks ago. The, uh, but that's where we're at. We're on that Tuesday right now. Which day did he chase out the money changers? That was a Monday. That was Monday, the day he cleansed the temple. Which day was considered his busy day? During this last week. It's a really, really busy day. Do you remember? We're studying it right now. We're in the middle of that day. Tuesday. Tuesday was his busy week. Has all the teaching, the debates. True or false, once he came to Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, he did not heal anyone because the, didn't, the Jews kept on asking for a sign and he was like fed up with the signs and just doing the teaching. True or false? No more healings Passion Week. You got 50-50, folk. Was the party that bad last night? That, what do you think? True or false? Is anybody going to say anything? You got to take a guess. He did heal. He did. Okay, so it's false. On Monday, it says that the blind and the lame, which is interesting, on the day that he comes and cleanses the temple, scores of people come and he's still doing healing on that day, even though the Jews are attacking and accusing him. And some are saying, where's the sign? And he keeps on showing them. True or false, he did not openly minister to any Jews or Gentiles that week because he didn't want to, in the temple area, create any more premature offenses. It's a 50-50. What do you think? In John chapter 12, there's a group of people who say, Sirs, we would see Jesus. It's in John 12. It happens on either late Monday or early Tuesday that a group of Gentiles seek him out. They are called Greeks. They are there worshiping. They are proselytes that are involved with the uh, Jewish Passover time. And so they're, they're, they're Greeks who have uh, converted to Judaism. And they are there celebrating the Passover feast with him. Now we're in Matthew chapter 21. We're continuing our study. And what we're doing is we're talking about that Tuesday of the Passion Week, which now this is the day we're really, really really, really. It's been intense. They wanted to kill him, but now it gets really out of hand. Now, just the scene, remember Sunday is the triumphal entry. Monday is the cleansing of the temple. Sometime during Monday, Tuesday, he also is passing by the fig tree. He curses it, and then the next day he comes and explains it. Tuesday is the day he's going to spend a lot of teaching and debates are taking place in the temple. This is when those six major groups come and they attack him. They try to trick him, such as, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And so they're trying to trip him up. Up. And like I said, Monday, Tuesday, he's cursed the fig tree, comes back the next day, and he explains that this is representative of Israel, that they, they say they have fruit, but they really don't. Then the Greeks seek him out again, Monday or Tuesday. We're not exactly sure which one of those two days. It's during all this time of that temple cleansing and or the debates that take place. On Tuesday, the challenges are recorded in all four Gospels, I'm sorry, all synoptic Gospels, that he is having debates that are taking place, that they are trying to 
catch Jesus so as to bring him to trial, so as to get rid of him. There are six of these major controversies that are dealing with a lot of the contemporary issues. One of the first groups that comes are the Jewish leaders, that is the high priest group, the Sadducees. They come and the rabbis, there's a blend of them, and they come and it says, by what authority do you do all these things? I assume that means by your speaking, by your cleansing of the temple, and remember that these chief priests are really big on authority. They quote other authorities. They claim that they can teach because they have these credentials, and their credentials are not from the Word of God. Their credentials are always by other teachers that have, that have um, ordained them that have said, you're the guy. And so they're real big on that. They, they come to Jesus and they're asking him exactly who gave you the authority to teach our people. Now, from a flip side of you and I saying, well, why would they ask that? From a flip side, if they are the in charge of the temple area, shouldn't they ask some questions? I mean, wouldn't that be appropriate for them to examine who is teaching the people that they're supposed to be in charge of or responsible for? Which they did, and they had a system. And we remember, if we've talked about, according to the Sanhedrin system, they would send out a preliminary investigation, a secondary investigation, investigative group, a third group, and then they'd make declaration. Well, they've already done that over the last two years. They have sent people to examine Jesus and come back and report, and they've made their conclusion that you are casting out demons by Beelzebub. Now they're challenging him again about a year later, a year and a half later, and they're saying, okay, who gave you this authority to teach some more and do these things? Jesus responds the way the rabbis would teach. He asks a question of them. He recounters, he said, by what authority did John baptize? And he's got them, he's got them stumped because they figure with in their mind and they're right. If they say John was from God, he's going to say, why didn't you listen? If they say John was from the, from uh, was not from God, he was just a heretic, then the people will get upset. Luke says they will even, the, that the, he records, they said the people will stone us because the people are convinced John was a martyred prophet. And so Jesus has trapped them in their own words. They were trying to get him into a trap. He turns it. They're confused. Their response is, we can't answer. We don't know. Well, that means Jesus doesn't answer, have to answer them. That's a rabbinical uh, discussion and how they would operate. And so they're not answering. And then Jesus, okay, goes on and he makes several different comments. This is, this is where he teaches the group. He teaches and addresses the people standing by. There's an audience listening to him in this debate. And so he's going to instruct and he gives parables. There are three parables that he speaks in sequence. Matthew is the only gospel that records all three. He tells the parable about a father who has two sons. The first son, if you read it there in Matthew chapter 21, going into chapter 22, the first son, he says, hey, I want you to go and work in the field. The son uh, explains. He says, I'll do that. I'm going to go and work. And uh, as a result, the time goes by and the son never goes, according to Matthew 21, verse 28. Then he goes to the second son. He says, son, will you go and work? And that son refuses, but then he repents and he says, I'll go. And he asks the leader, he says, which of these two boys really did the father's will? And the answer is, well, the, uh, the one who actually did go and do the work. And I'm mixing him up in my mind right now. 
but the one who said initially, I'm not going to go, and then ended up going, he said, that's the one who really, really, really was the obedient child here. And so Jesus makes the application clear, and he's going to talk about them. If you notice in this text, Jesus gives the answer to the parable. Look in chapter 21. He says in verse uh, 31 that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came. Now that's your tie. That's why he's answering it at this moment. He, they are talking, they've asked him about John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist came and preached, and the majority of people who responded were the publicans and the harlots. They were the outcasts. They had earlier said, we want nothing to do with God, but now they are repenting in John's ministry, and they're starting to make changes according to the Word of God. Jesus is equating them to that son who said, I do not want to listen to you, Dad. I'm not going to go out and work, but later changes his mind. Jesus equates those people who have repented uh, with that one son. However, he turns it and he says to the, to the Jewish leaders, and that's how this all works together, John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you what? The leaders did not believe him, but the publicans and harlots, they believed him. And you, when you had seen it, you repented not afterward that you might believe. In other words, you're like that son who had all kinds of, I'm going to go, I'm going to work in the field, but never performed. And so Jesus is making it very clear. You guys are disobedient to your heavenly father. And he's, he's, he's laying it out that they are trying to trap him, but he's pointing out their faults and their weaknesses spiritually. Then the story goes on. Continue down. Look in your Bible. That there's another uh, uh, parable that he gives, and he just flows right into this parable where it says in the next verse, there's a little bit of gap in my Bible with a heading, but then it says, verse 33, here another parable. And again, remember who he's talking to, he's pointing out problems that they have spiritually. In fact, you jump to the end of the story. Jump to verse 45. What do these people who are the closest, who he's addressing, and others are eavesdropping, do they get it that he's talking about them according to verse 45? It says, and when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he spake of them. And so he's going to, he's going to use these parables to challenge these people. And both the initial parable and the second parable, he very clearly says, this applies to you leaders. This applies to you who are trying to trap me, trying to trick me up. And he goes on, he tells them. And, and in this course of this parable, he makes it very clear. And he even asks them questions. And he brings them, he involves them in his story, and they give the right answers. And so the story unfolds this way. The story is real simple. Now, remember what a parable is. It's a casting beside. That's literally the combination of two words, to cast something beside. What you take is real-life situations and cast um, application or illustration or, or like an object lesson. That's what you're dealing with. He's casting beside real-life events. And he's taking real-life events that these people would understand, everyday event, that somebody has a field, that in this field that, they're, that they want, he says, this householder planted a vineyard, hedged it round about, digged a wine press, built a tower, let it out to tenants, according to verse 33. And then he went, goes away. And when a time of the fruit drew nigh, he sends his servants to the tenants or husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. In other words, you've le leased out your land, now you want payment. And so he sends his first group, the husbandmen, according to verse 35, they took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sends more servants than the first, and they did the same unto them. But last of all, he says unto them, unto himself, I will send my son, they will re reverence my son. And so here's the 
this guy taking a real life story, a real life situation. Here's Jesus taking a real life situation from them. And it's true. It happened all the time. People who are wealthy would have a, a, period, a, a plot of ground. They would prepare it. They would get it ready to, pre, to be able to produce. They would lease it out. They would have tenants live on it. They would expect a portion of the profit. And then they would send back people to collect the profits. Okay? And so when you start looking, Jesus is going to make the application. He says that the husbandmen, those who treat the messengers and don't pay up, they're like you spiritual leaders. The Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders, they understand he's talking about them. How they don't listen. They don't, they've been leased something, but they don't, they don't pay up. And they treat the messengers from the master in a very, very bad way. And so the application comes out real, real clear. Israel, they know this. They understand their Old Testament. They know Israel has been recorded as and called a vineyard that God has prepared, that God has, has basically wanted his fruit from those people, that God gave a lot to Israel, that he digged them about, that he watered them, that he gave them a plentiful land and that he prospered them and that God had left in charge spiritual leadership the preachers, the teachers, the Levites, the priests and eventually in time the rabbis who were in charge and they were supposed to help pre, uh, to uh, help these people bring about spiritual fruitfulness and that God wanted them to be able to be a productive people then just as the owner would send servants, God sent servants repeatedly, the the servants are called the prophets of the Old Testament. They are calling and saying, bring forth fruit of repentance. Who was the most recent of the prophets that God had sent to say to the Israelites, bring forth fruit for repentance? John. That's why this discussion is happening, because John was the most recent one. And John was, uh, was put away or put off by the Jewish leaders, and eventually Herod takes care of John. And so you have these tenants treating the servants poorly. Did that ever happen in Israel's history? Did they ever reject the prophets and treat God's prophets in a poor fashion? Can you think of any prophets that they... Okay, Elijah, they treated poorly. Jeremiah, they threw him in prison. Okay, they threatened his life. Okay, they cut up his documents. So you have several of these occasions that are very, very, very clear that the prophets came. And so in this story, the, the story goes on that what they did, they rebelled. The tenants don't bring forth their due. The owner, in his graciousness, did you catch it in Matthew? He sends servants, and then he sends more servants a second time. And the bad treatment just keeps on escalating. Now Mark says that they beat him up and eventually killed him. Matthew kind of brings that, that they did the killing. And they did do some killing. They did wipe out some prophets. They did stone the prophets. And so Jesus is making it very clear that Israel had these prophets and they rejected them over their course of their history. And including John the Baptist. The owner decides to send his son. And his thinking is they will not dare to attack my son. Or their thinking is this, okay? which we have the story that's go on. When the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, verse 38, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, let us seize his inheritance. Does that seem reasonable to you? That you're going to kill the owner's son and the owner's going to let you take over the property. Actually, 
back in Bible days, there is record of this. There is record that we have that, uh, that it would happen if there is no heir, the tenants, on more than a few occasions, they did get the property. So they're looking and they're saying, this isn't uncommon that if there's no heir, then it's going to be ours. We'll kill them. We could, you know, bloody the cloth. We don't have to claim we killed them, but we're going to do it. And then we will be, end up getting this land. It's going to go into just public domain and where the squatter's rights will get the land. And so legally or historically, they have some reason to try to think this is right. But seriously, they're going to kill the guy's son when the guy is still alive. What do they think he's going to do? They caught him, verse 39, cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. The Lord, therefore, of the vineyard, he's going to come, Jesus says, verse 40, and he asked the audience, what do you think he should do to those tenants? Well, what would you do to the tenants? Okay, same thing, the, the leaders answer. They say he's going to destroy those wicked men and let out the vineyard to other tenants. And Jesus answers and he's going to go on basically saying, you're right, you're absolutely right. That's what should be done to these guys who are, who are wrong. So they carried out the plan. By the way, here's another veiled reference to Jesus being killed by the Jews. It's another veiled implication that they're going to kill me. That I'm God's son. They've rejected his prophets. They're going to stone me, kill me, you know, execute me in their own way. And uh, at the hands of the Jews, I'm going to die. So the story goes on, and Jesus is going to uh, ask the leaders. They say that he should punish them, and Jesus is basically going to say, you're absolutely right. And Jesus jumps to Psalm 118. He quotes a passage out of Psalm 118 that is a messianic psalm. It's taught that way. They know it's a messianic psalm. They understand from their Sabbath schools that this is the point. And in that messianic psalm, they call the Messiah a stone. And so Jesus is going to use this Old Testament reference and it's referring that stone to either the foundation stone that would be um, laid like our foundation here. You have a whole bunch of different foundations all the way around the four sides of this room. Well, he's saying there could be one of those stones where everything is built upon or the cornerstone was put in one corner and everything was lined up according to that one cornerstone. And so we don't know exactly which one he's talking about, but he's talking about this major stone used in building. A stone that God chooses, but their builders, the Jews, they reject. And so in that story of Psalm 118, God still uses the rejected stone. And in Psalm 118, he talks about that. And I think he refers to it once again, where he says, do you not ever read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, what people reject, God is going to work and God's going to do this. And despite their rejection, God's going to show his authority and his greatness. And he's going to make something out of what others would say is not acceptable. And so he goes on, he says, this stone will be upon which everything is built spiritually. This stone will crush. It'll destroy those upon whom the stone falls or those who fall upon the stone as if in a point of execution for them. And so Jesus gives this Psalm 118 reference to the son who has come and the, the tenants have killed. And he goes on, he mentions, he says, the kingdom of God, verse 43, shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. So in other words, you resist this stone, it's going to be, lead to your 
destruction, some worse than others. And so he's made this application. He has elsewhere described himself as this type of a stone. The New Testament says he is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. So we know where he's talking about. He is talking and he's illustrating, I'm going to be rejected, but I'm going to eventually destroy those who have rejected me. And by God's grace, he will do a wonderful, marvelous, marvelous work. And so the wicked tenants... Okay, what he's trying to point out to them is that these tenants, which represent the Jewish leaders, they are not guaranteed God's kingdom. This is interesting because these Jewish tenants think that they should get the kingdom. They'll take the sun out. It's theirs because the squatter's rights. Well, the Jewish leaders have that in mind. We have squatter's rights. We deserve everything because we've been here all these years. We're God's chosen people. And he's going to point out that the kingdom of heaven is taken from them, basically, the Jewish leaders, and they get it. They understand he's talking about them and given to others. What is he referring to? Taking the kingdom from those tenants and giving it to others, the Jews. Who's the others that he's given the kingdom to? The Gentiles. This is a reference of Jesus saying that other nations that bring forth groups, this is, I'm going to turn to them. So he's telling them his gospel plan that you're going to reject me, I'm going to be destroyed, but I'm going to come back to life, in other words, and I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to take this kingdom and I'm going to turn it to other people, other nation groups, the Gentiles, and you won't be the only people. The Jewish anger leaders, they get it. They understand it, and it says they left angry. They were upset. Why? Because he's saying, you guys are wicked servants. You guys are going to be destroyed. You guys are not going to get the kingdom. And on top of it, not only are you not going to get the kingdom, who's going to get it? The Gentiles who they despise. Do you understand from their perspective why they left angry? They were really ticked. Everything he said just absolutely busted them in the chops. And, but they didn't do anything. The passages, you compare the Gospels, they were so angry, but they didn't do anything because they fear the people. Because Jesus, as he is saying this about the leadership, what do you think the audience is doing? The audience who just sees their hypocritical leadership get kicked in the pants, what do, what do you think the crowd noise is? Huzzah! Great! Give it to them. We want to let them see them, let them, let them get it. And so they know that the crowd loves what Jesus is doing and is listening to Jesus, so they aren't going to do anything. Now, take that story and let's make some modern day application. It's very clear. It is very clear from what Jesus says that no people group is guaranteed access into heaven because of a nationality, because of heritage. He's making it very clear to the Jews. It's also very clear to us American Christian element. We don't get to heaven because of our, uh, of our nationality or a heritage. He is looking for spiritual fruits. He's already talked about that earlier this day when he's given the explanation of the tree, the fig tree tree that is destroyed because it didn't have fruit. God is very patient, gives multiple chances for repentance. In the parable, he sends servants, he sends servants, he sends his son. He is being very patient, but there is a limit to God's grace. 
Okay? There's a time when he says, I will laugh at your calamity. I will, I will turn my back at a certain point. And so grace has a limited opportunity. Jesus is making it very clear. What God is doing at this time, and I'm the stone, I'm operating according to God's word. I am fulfilling the Psalm 118 passage. God is going to work exactly as what he predicted, which he always does. God always works according to his word. God does not work according to what men think is right spiritually or wrong spiritually. The builders reject the stone, therefore should God have rejected the stone? The answer is no. That God works by what he has declared, not by what a church group says that, okay, this is the way God has to operate, this is, this is the way it's going to be. God is the authority, not any group, not any church group or religious group. God knows what is best. He knows what is right. He has the proper stone. He we we will reap what we sow. Okay, that's clear. The tenants reaped evil, they're going to get an evil reward. Judgment will come. It's going to be sure. It's going to be swift. By the way, the very next few minutes, he's going to give another parable and talk about judgment once again. And he's very clear about this judgment while he's preaching grace. God graciously opens up the gospel to all people. Aren't you glad Aren't you, seriously, aren't you glad that Jesus said these words? That Jesus says, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth fruits thereof. Because if he didn't say that, if he didn't do that, you and I would not have that opportunity to be saved unless we became Jewish peoples and went through all of their ritualism. And so God makes this open to us, and there is another portrayal of grace, even while he's talking about judgment. Now, on top of that, he gives another parable. Luke refers to this parable in Luke 14. In Luke 14, it's in another occasion that it was spoken, but Jesus at this occasion, according to Matthew, he continues right on with a third parable. The parable we start reading as we just continue right on, the Jewish leaders have walked away. They want to lay hands on him, but they, they fear the people because the people think he's from God. He's like John the Baptist. By the way, he has answered the question, I am like John, I am sent by God. Okay, verse 22, Jesus answered or spoke again in other parables and continued on. The kingdom of heaven is like, and again, he's giving another kingdom of heaven. He's telling us exactly what this parable is about. And I remind you that when we get parables, that Jesus, you have to look at the audience, who he's talking to. It's people who, um, who think they're getting to heaven because of their Judaism. And he's going to speak a parable very clearly. Now, the leadership is walking away. He's already condemned them, but he's going to be on another step. He's going to continue it and say to the group, the people at large, and he gives the interpretation. He tells us exactly what this parable is about. It's about the future kingdom of heaven, how God is going to operate. And he uses real-life experiences. Now, in this story, he takes a real-life occasion. He he says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king that is making a marriage for his son. Okay, Bible days. Did they do weddings? Yes, they did. What was the key part of the wedding? What's the major part of the wedding? Did they have the ceremonies like we do? 
What was their ceremonies like? Well, that's the critical to what we know. When there was a wedding, you could get engaged. Um, you, you could get engaged a period of time, usually a year beforehand, and gave the couple. She would have a year to get her dowry, and she would get her house taken care of and her items, and he would give him a year to get the house built. And so usually they did that. They got engaged. They would send out, you know, save the date card that would give an approximate time, and uh, you would invite your, your friends and relatives, but it was kosher that at that time, when the day arrived, you know, or the day before, you send out your, your invitation again, say, hey, it's tomorrow, it's, now it's the reminder, come, come, come to the wedding feast, and they would come. The wedding ceremony was really, really short. It was a man's wedding ceremony. It lasted all of a few minutes. Amen, amen. Okay, the ceremony was basically the parents would bless the kids after they did their parade through town, they'd come to the father's house, dad would say something, dad would say something, and they would pronounce a blessing, and they were married. It was quick, it was short, it was sweet. And then the major part of the wedding was the, the feast itself. The feast was elaborate. That could last several days. Okay, so you, you trade up this church ceremony for this long, elongated feast. And so in this story, you got a situation where a king who is wealthy, he has a son who's going to get married. That means if he's the son, he's the prince. That means the people in the region, this is their lord. This is their master. It gives her, you know, the, send the, uh, the save the date cards are sent out. The invitations are given. The day arrives. The master sends out the people. That's where we pick up. He sent forth his servants to call them that were, had been bidden to the wedding, but according to verse 3, what do the people decide? <coughs> They're not going to come, okay? And so he sends forth other servants. Now, the, Luke has told a parable earlier. Luke has told, recorded a parable where some of them give reasons. I'm going to buy some land. I have to go check it out. I bought some land. I got to check it out. What's stupid about that one? What, what would you do? You, you would check it out before. I, I bought some oxen. I've got to check them out. Again, you buy it, you check it out beforehand. You, you drive the car ahead of time. Okay, and so they gave him lame excuses. Now, he, Matthew doesn't record any lame excuse. He just says they refuse to come. Same idea, though. Um, he goes on, and again, he sent forth his servants, say, tell them which are bidden, behold, I've prepared my dinner. The ox, the fatlings are killed. All things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Okay, so, you know, the, the caterer is here, the food is ready, what am I going to do with all of it? And they made light of it. They went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. The remnant, now watch verse 6, the others took his servants and treated them spitefully, and then what? They killed them. And when the king heard thereof, oh man, is that how you treat your invitations? Well, let me rephrase this. Do you feel like at times getting really angry at those people who call you and call you and call you to sell you windows, okay, that they call you to sell you insurance or they want you to have the best deal for your electric, okay, and they call and they present themselves and what's your response after a while, okay, if you say no thank you all the time, but after a while they keep on bugging you, okay. You want to blow a whistle into the phone. You want to do something. Well, these people come to a point where they go, okay, we've had enough of this guy inviting, and they, they treat him spitefully. They slew them. And we go on, and what happens is, you know, here we got. Now, watch the story. You got the king being very gracious. Was he gracious in the previous parable, giving them opportunity, 
several times. Again, graciousness of sending this invitation time and time again. The response is the same. They're making light. It increases as time goes by. That they are becoming violent with the servants. The king's response, okay, in this one, remember Jesus last time said, what do you think the king should, uh, the, the um, owner of the property should do? And they say he should go and slay those people who slew his servants. Jesus doesn't ask because the leaders have left. He's telling a parable that includes the leaders, but they aren't there to answer his question. And so he just continues the story and says, here's what's going to happen. The king heard thereof, now watch, watch wording in verse 7, and you may want to mark something. The king heard thereof, he gets really angry. He sends his what? Sends his army. He does what to the people? He destroys the murders. What else does he take care of? He burns the city, okay? So their property is destroyed. Keep that in mind, okay? Keep it in mind. Then it goes on that what happens is he says, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were bidden, they weren't worthy. So go therefore into the highways and byways, as many as you shall find, and bid them come to the marriage. So the servants went out into the highways and byways and gathered together as many as they found, both what? Okay, good and bad people, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Previous parable, he is turning to another nation or another group of people. So you see all the parallels that are taking place. There's an invitation. They're supposed to be you know, responding to this king, this owner, this wealthy person who has sent invitation. And in something, it's, both the stories involve his son. And in both these stories, the son is not being respected. The messengers are not being respected. And so the king comes this time and destroys. The king comes and, and this third time, they're inviting anybody and everybody. But he destroys not only the people, but their city. I remind you that in just four decades after Jesus spoke this, what happened to the city of Jerusalem? It was burned. It was destroyed by who? By the Romans. And it was part of what he has already cried over on Sunday when he's marching into the city and all the crowds are cheering for Jesus. What is Jesus doing riding upon the donkey? Is he glad or is he filled with sorrow? He is weeping, grieving over what? He knows the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. Okay, he knows he's going to die, but he's burdened for these people because they're going to be destroyed because they rejected his offer. So, get back to the parable. The marriage feast is loaded. Okay, the caterers, the, they aren't going to have much left to put in the freezer. And so he's got that part of the story, that part of the parable, you know, is very clear. He's made the analogies. The audience is listening. The audience is hearing. He's going to turn, take the gospel to other people, and he gives a warning. At this point, watch how he warns the audience that is there. He is going to say, you can still get in, but watch what we, we goes on. He says, when the king came in, verse 11, to see the guest, he saw there a man that was improperly dressed. Okay? He didn't have on what? The wedding garment. Okay? And he said, the master says, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? The man is speechless. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's he referring to? What place is weeping and gnashing of teeth in outer darkness? It's hell, okay? And so he's taking, he's saying, okay, God's going to open this offer to other people, but even though he opens this offer to enter into the feast, what must they do? They still have to 
meet certain requirements. Now, let's, let's go back into Bible days. In Bible days, could you come to a wedding feast dressed any way you wanted? The answer is no. There was in that culture appropriate attire. By the way, in our culture, is there appropriate attire for a formal wedding? Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Usually if we're a guest, we don't say, well, I'm going to wear anything I want. Usually we would say if we would wear anything we want to a formal wedding, who would we be disrespecting? The bride and groom. I mean, that's common sense, is it not? Okay, that it would be that way that we have that. Now, in this culture, you got the king, and the king is saying, hey, when you don't dress appropriately, you are showing disrespect to me and my son. And so that's going to have some type of a consequence here and a personal offense that the king responds to. And so the king, we know what happens, that he gets cast out. The man is speechless. He has nothing to say. It's kind of like, why should I let you into heaven? And the person has nothing to answer. He's bound. He's taken away. And he's cast out. We all know what this is. This is a reference to the kingdom of heaven being the place of glory, hell being the place of disglory. And so he then concludes and he says, many are called and few are chosen, which has led to all kinds of theological discussions and all kinds of ideas about election and calling and things of that sort, which keep it in its context. It's not that difficult. He's not, he's not getting into this lengthy idea of, okay, you know, God knows whether you get saved or chooses you and doesn't choose you. Don't run rampant with, with a logical argument that isn't biblically founded. So what he does is he is making a discussion or a um, making a statement in a discussion dealing with which group of people? Who is the focus of his attention in these parables? It's, it's the Jewish people. It's the Jewish nation and their leadership. That's who he's talking about and to. Okay, he's making reference to the Gentiles. But he's, he's basically saying, you who are of the Jewish mindset, Jewish, Jewish nationality, you got to get this. You aren't getting into heaven because of your Judaism. You aren't getting into heaven because of, by the way, they typically would point out to what? We deserve to get to heaven because of our history. What has he just pointed out about their history? They're, they're, not only doesn't it matter, what has he shown that they have a history of doing? In the, in the parables, what's their historical response to God? The rejection of the messengers, rejection of the prophets. So they're saying, we get to go to heaven because we have such a good history. And Jesus is saying, uh, number one, your history isn't that good. Does that make sense, what he's doing? He's pulling that, that proverbial rug right out from under them. That they don't have this glorious spiritual history. It's really rather rank. You know, they've got a bad history. And so he's pointing that out. But he's going to make this concluding comment. Many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, how, how many of the Jews were called to an offer of salvation? Most all of them. Okay, we would say all. The many being, you know, all of them. But how many meet that requirement? Jesus is making it very clear. Very few are making the requirement. Oh, by the way, how many have been called to be tenants and to be masters and leaders? A whole lot of guys. A whole lot of guys. How many of that leadership will respond to the gospel? Very few. So far, we only know of one. one. One Jewish leader in all of them so far who has said anything good and positive about Jesus. 
when he said to him, Master, we know you are from God because no man can do the things which you do except they be of God. Do you remember that one? Nicodemus. That's the only one that's given any semblance of belief or, or uh, a positive note. Now, there's been a couple of instances where it says the some of the Pharisees accepted what he was saying to a degree, but up to this point, we just don't hear a lot about it. So what he's got in this passage is the Jews who are called or invited to God's heavenly kingdom. They've been called time and time and time again. He told them about this time and time and time again. He warned them. He sent his prophets time and time and time again, say, bring forth fruit, bring forth fruit. But they have this history of rejecting the prophets. It's, it's documented. They know it. They aren't believing it. They're... they're um, they're rewriting their own history. They're only picking out those moments that they like. In time, the Jews will come under God's chastisement, including the destruction of their city. He's already predicted that on Sunday. He's mentioned it on other occasions. The invitation, therefore, will go to outsiders. He's already alluded to that in other occasions. He does it again in this parable. I'm going to go to the Gentiles, to the sinners of the world. However, even those people who are the good, the bad of society, they need to meet certain requirements. They need to have certain attire. And has the Old Testament ever used the idea of, of faith or works being represented by garments? Has it ever been done that way before? Do you remember Isaiah? All of our good works are as filthy. Yeah, they understand the concept. They know that that's an illustration or, or a spiritual analogy saying you need to be clothed with the appropriate garment of faith. They understand. And so he's made it very clear. Here's our lessons. Okay, God is so determined. This is grace. God is so determined to have men in his kingdom, he repeatedly invites people to come. Let me rephrase that. Did any of you respond to the gospel the very first time you heard it, you got saved? Did any of you that happen to? Let's rephrase that. How many of us heard the gospel several times before we responded and got saved? Okay. Okay, that's a lot of us. A lot of us and probably the majority of us. That we heard it multiple times. Did God have to give us multiple opportunities? No, other than we were just dense or stubborn. And so it's a grace that he gives us that opportunity. God meant for, the, this is a fact, God meant for the Jews to have first dibs on salvation. In fact, he said salvation is of the Jews when he spoke to the woman at the well. But Christ does open up the, the invitation to others because the Jewish peoples, they rejected him. Kevin is filled with what the Jewish leaders would say, the undeserving, the, the bad from society. That's a fact. Okay, by the way, would they, modern day Orthodox Jews, would they consider us undeserving of heaven? Yes, because we are, yeah, we're Gentiles, we're not Jews. It is by God's grace that any of us are invited and allowed into this kingdom of heaven. That is a fact. It's only by grace. To be allowed into the heaven, we still, we, though we're allowed, we still need to have the spiritual garments. Meet God's dress standards where he says he clothes us in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so we have going on this reality. Salvation is a real work of God. It is not a work of us, you and me. We don't bring about salvation. We haven't provided salvation. We don't deserve it in that sense. He does the providing. He does the inviting. He hosts it. He provides it. However, is there another side of the coin that says there's a human element involved? 
The answer is absolutely positively yes. The human element means we have got to respond to his offer. And however we respond to that offer, that determines what is going to be God's reaction to us. Is he going to allow us in or not? We are then held responsible. Here's why I say this. Some will say salvation is all of God. I believe that. I believe salvation is all of God. But I also believe there's a human element. Therefore, if somebody goes to hell, whose fault is it? It's not God's fault. It's who? It's theirs because they are held responsible for the way they respond to God's offer of salvation. Many are called and many are given this offer of salvation. In fact, what does Jesus say in the next day or so in discussion? Oh, he's already said it to the Gentile leader, uh, the Greeks they talked to. If, if I be lifted up, I will draw. Do you remember in John 12? How many people will he draw? All men. He will, bring, he will try to bring truth to all men and woo them, but they're going to be held responsible. So we have this human element, divine element that goes with it, and Jesus then gets engaged with another group of people. As the story goes on, he's finished it. Right after that, look at verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. They sent unto him their disciples with the Herodians. And now that's important. Now we're going to get into political discussion. They're going to try to make it a political argument. They're going to ask about paying taxes to Caesar or not. And they're going to use their political cronies who they can't stand, that they hate. And so here they are, the Pharisees working with the Herodians. They can't stand each other, but they work together because why? They hate Jesus more than they hate each other. Okay, and so then they attack him, and it embarks into a whole other discussion, and it gets into number two of those six different discussion questions that they're trying to trap Jesus in. We'll pick that one up next week.